You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to this week's episode of Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Herd is hosted by me, Joe Hakeem, and I'm joined by Nick Britsky of Nick Drinks, Jason Leinert of the Detroit Optimist Society, and Vato of the Hungry Dudes. We are joined each episode by workers, leaders, and analysts of the hospitality industry. Please take a moment to subscribe to Herd on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you like or dislike what you hear, write a review. We love hearing from our listeners. You can visit Herd at HerdPodcast.com, follow Herd on Twitter and Instagram at Herd Podcast, and like Herd Podcast on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and now here's this week's episode of Herd. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. We have a sponsor this week. We'd like to thank Axel Brewing for sponsoring this episode of Herd. Uh, Axel is releasing their beer secret meeting on Saturday, April 13th, at their Livernois Tap House in Ferndale. Uh, secret meeting is a Baltic porter that's been aged in Detroit City Distillery rye barrels. All right, so the event starts on, it's on Saturday, April 13th, 4 p.m., <laughs> Uh, they will have a limited number of 500 milliliter bottles available exclusively at the tap room. There are $13 a piece, and the limit is one case per person. I imagine a case is going to be 12 bottles. So that answered all the questions we just had. It did. So literally, Joe and I just finished filming a video over there that was about as low budget as possible. Yes. It was a zero budget. Yes, zero budget. And it was fantastic. So go watch that too. Yeah, that, that's it's an excellent video. Excellent. Um, and all oh, the beer will also be on tap. It's on tap. Uh, Which is what we had, right? Yeah. yeah. It'll, it's, everything will be released Saturday. I don't know if it, it's... Uh, uh, you probably can't get a taste of it before like we had the pleasure of doing. So not only did we get to try it on tap, but we have a bottle right here. We do. It is really good. So I am kind of over-barrel-aged. I actually have a video in the works about how I'm kind of over-barrel-aged beers. This answers all of my problems with barrel-age. It is not too sweet. It is spicy. It's not like overly boozy. Well, it doesn't taste overly boozy. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's 13%. So it's it, it, it packs a punch. Yeah. At a 500 milliliter <laughs> bottle, it's something you should share. Um, but it, it's it's wonderful. You want to you want to break it open? Sure, let's do it. Uh, so this is a wax sealed bottle. Our guest tonight, Yanni, uh, the partner at Bad Luck Bar, is uh, the Yanni. Has, the Yanni has a uh, knife on him. That is a, a perfectly legal knife. It's a perfectly. This le- is not like a uh, what do you call it? I, I'm not afraid he's going to like. I always feel like I'm peeling an apple every time I do yeah, this. You're, yeah, you're peeling it very well. Crocodile um, Nendi, that was the word I'm looking for. So another thing I'm over, and nothing against Axel Brewing, you know, since they sponsor us, but wax, waxing the bottle tops, I just don't get it. Still- Liquor, beer, I don't like any of it. Unless it's, I mean, unless it's 100 years old. Unless it's 100 years old, I don't think that... Uh... So, But are there benefits? So if you were going to cellar this, does, the, does that help keep the seal? I don't think that cellaring a lot of beers really is a good thing. Okay. Uh, every brew guy, brew master, beer company owner is like drink it. They say drink it. Yeah. It's one thing to keep it for like, eh, keep it for a year, but every single one, there you should drink the beers for drinking. So the marketing guy and me, and I know that Dan, the owner, is a marketing guy. It it does look pretty. Yeah. Oh, I d- love the it, colors. Yeah, it does look good. Um the the but to to Yanni's point, and I think this is important, is when a when a beer is bottled it is bottled at the point when the brewer wants, the brewer you, to wants you to drink right. it. Um, I, I, you know, and I'm guilty of having 
beer in my basement that's multiple years old at this point. Um, not on purpose, though. Oh, I have uh, some uh, cat grass that's like multiple years old. Now. Yeah, and cat grass is the one that was brewed on one day and <laughs> delivered down here the next from Shorts. It was supposed to be drunk the same day, and here we are two years later. <laughs> I have three or four-year-old bottles of Hop Slam. Um, yeah, so drink your beer. Uh, if you're going to keep, like Yanni said, keep it for a year or whatever. Um, but just, just go to Axel and buy it right now. That's all you have to do. And drink it. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. And they'll make something else next year, and then you buy that, and then you drink it next year. Yeah, so th- this is the fifth in their barrel-aged series. So um, I-, I think it's great they're using rye barrels instead of bourbon. I think it's great they're using Detroit City distillery barrels. Um, it- it's it- it's a really great project. Um, and uh, I would say that I if think. he didn't pass. I, I think it- this is a really tasty beer. Yes. And I was really impressed with the food tonight as well. I had the Cubano. It was very good. Oh, that lamb sandwich was awesome. Yeah. For seven bucks. Yeah. So... Um, Sorry, Jason. We we box you out. Of what? This is really good. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't fuck with beer, so yeah. Well, so <clears throat> you don't you don't fuck with beer. Um, Yanni has some sort of contraption. That oh, he brought good us. thing. Good thing I brought rum. Yeah. If you don't, <laughs> you're not messing around with with beer, I, I've been known to, to enjoy a little rum now and then. So tell me what glass this is because I adore this shape. Is this a sherry? Oh my gosh, you don't know the shape. Uh, you of all now, people, now I'm schooled by Yanni. Oh my go. goodness. So this glass is um, essentially. I was looking for uh, a great glass to uh, to like serve things. Uh, at Bad Luck, and we have a lot of uh, really nice, unique, uh, vintage, rare stuff, things that are just a little bit more higher quality, harder to make, and uh, you want to taste it, uh, obviously. And when I say taste, it's more for aromatic qualities, and it's there's a fine balance of too much aroma, not enough aroma, your nose too close to the surface level of the glass, et cetera, et cetera. So this glass is made by Riedel, uh, and it was in conjunction with a lot of the... Uh, uh, Cognac Masters, uh, the the head guy at Hennessy, the head guy at uh, Remy uh, Martin, uh, all the head guys came together cl- uh, collaboratively and essentially designed this glass. And I figure if it's good enough for the most expensive cognac in the world, it's good enough for everything else. Um, so that's why I really love these. And this is the uh, the Vino, the Venom mm-hmm. uh, Cognac Redel tasting glass. So if you kind of sit there and explain the shape, it is maybe an inch and a half circumference it's probably three inches tall and it doesn't have it as opposed to like a wine glass that kind of curves back in this also kind of goes back out again up at the top it gives you it's trying to push out that bouquet okay it's weird because does that speak to any you know there's there's whiskey a number of different there's single malt there's glencairn number of whiskey glasses you're talking about cognac obviously wine does that speak in any way to how maybe rum gets the short end of the stick in terms of its perception among elite spirits? Or oh, abs- yeah. So uh, there's no rum tasting glass, right? No, there isn't, and that's because none of those guys will ever be in the same room at one time. There's just so many uh, uh, heads of all the rum companies and the islands, and because it's all regional for rum, and to get all of those different styles, different thought processes, different rules, because they all make up their own. Uh, lingo their own uh rules what they can do what they're not allowed to do the standardizations are all over the place all every island is totally different so to say that they all got together to agree on one glassware would be 
a miracle. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them will be like, you're supposed to just shoot it. You're supposed to put it in with some lime. You're supposed to drink it out of the bottle. I mean, they all have their own ideas and thoughts of how you should uh, consume or enjoy their uh, spirits. And, and you, you've done a good job of kind of championing some of the, the higher-end rums. When you guys opened Bad Luck, you brought you actually got national headlines, right? Yeah, so we still have uh, a couple. Uh, we still have a little bit left of that. We get uh, some vintage rum. It's a flagon. It's uh, essentially uh, all the Navy men would get uh, rations of rum pre seventies is when they the nineteen seventy nineteen seventy one is when they stopped it. A tot. Yeah, the the tot, and you get the the tot and black tot day is that uh, faithful day that they took away the. The rum rationing, because they thought it was probably the best idea to not have our uh, <laughs> our our military, our navy men uh, drinking while they're responsible for these, you know, weapons of mass destruction. And this was Her Majesty's Navy. Right? Yes, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't it, think we ever got a tot. No, we? we America never got uh, rum. Unfortunately, I'm sure they drank plenty uh, with all of the uh, the shops that they have on on the camps. Uh, what are they called? I forget the not the not the duty. It's like a duty free shop, but for military only. Uh, and my my friend was in the military. He'd bring back uh, like the hundred percent alcohol Everclear that they would get for like a dollar a bottle. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, basically, I mean that's over exaggeration, but very close. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, uh, we we love our rum. It's different. It's always different. Uh, we want to try to do something that's a little different than everyone else. And everyone has whiskey. We're gonna have something else. I personally love rum. Uh, when I got to go to Trinidad, it really opened up my eyes to see this kind of whole island culture, island life. Uh, of of how they how they do it down there, and to see one island's perspective of rum, and then to kind of come back home and try different islands rums, Jamaican rums, comparative to Trinidad, comparative to Barbados, to Haiti, they're all totally different. They're all totally different styles, and it's it's kind of a, a remarkable thing to be able to drink the same spirit differently, even though it's kind of the same, but just the standard of execution is totally different, and it's a lot of fun. So this is a blend. Yes. This is, so what what goes into this Yanni's blend of rum? So the idea was I don't think that I'm uh, an amazing blender or taster by any means. I don't want to have that perception of ego, but we really wanted to have a rum that we thought didn't exist. Dave and I, uh, a lot of the bartenders, Jason, we're at Sugar House. Uh, we love uh, Cruisin uh, brand uh, from St. Croix. makes a million different rums. They're not very expensive. Uh, a lot of flavored rums additionally to their standard traditional style rums. Uh, and there's one called Blackstrap. It's a uh, very, very sweet, extra caramel, extra everything that you can put in there because there's no rules in rum. So if you want to add a whole bunch of sugar to it, uh, additionally after distillation and barrel aging, feel free. Uh, and that's a lot of fun. So we really like that flavor, but it's kind of one-sided. Uh, it's not as expensive. You get really sweetness. You get that Blackstrap, a little bit of salinity from that uh, molasses. But for the most part, it's just a one-note, really sweet rum. So we love that idea. We tried, of course, uh, painstakingly, all the other rums to try to find something that was kind of close to that style. And uh, of course, there wasn't really anything that we thought came close to that sweetness, that kind of roundness, that, uh, that richness. So I decided just to blend some other rums that I really liked their uh, the spike profile and kind of put them together. And after a while, just figuring out the proper ratios ended up with this guy. So six different rums with the, uh, including cruising blackstrap and then five other rums. Uh, and then I blend them by weight to, uh, keep it as consistent, uh, as possible because I made the mistake of initially doing the recipe by volume 
And uh, I did that in the winter, and then I went to go recreate it in the summer, and that was not oh. a thing because alcohol is very, very sensitive to uh, temperature. You know, obviously it'll get colder. Uh, when it's colder, it'll shrink down, and when it's hotter, it'll expand. And that'll that's enough to throw <laughs> off the ratio that I had at that time. So I had to kind of go back and like, oh man, it really. So this is technically the the two point version, but it's the version we've we've used for. Four years. I've been this exact. This is the same recipe. So if you come in the bar and had the six rum blend, the bad luck daiquiri, this is the same hmm. stuff. Neat. And you wouldn't call this a rum cocktail. This is a rum no. blend. Rum blend. Okay. Uh, the cocktail would be if we put uh, a little bit of extra water in there okay. and uh, some sugar. There you go. Which I would argue is already in here. We don't have to add it. And uh, bitters, which I don't have, but uh, we're just drinking rum and uh, we don't need it right now. That's right. And you're experimenting with. Aging that rum currently? Um, yeah, actually, that's a great point that you brought up. Um, so, uh, a separate project, uh, you know, we kind of do small little things. Uh, we're a small little bar, so uh, we can't do crazy stuff. But when we can, we'll, we'll always do something uh, as an experiment, uh, put it on the back burner and forget about it and come back to it a little while later. The the uh, the expensive rum, the fancy rum that you were talking about earlier with, that we got headlines for was uh, – that ration rum. So uh, we got batches from 1950, 1940s, uh, 1960s, and all the way up to almost the 70s. Uh, so we got a couple different flagons. It's a 4.5 liter uh, stone jug uh, wrapped in wicker for protection. And that's what they shipped out the, uh, the rum in. So we got some of those, sold off the rum, had these really cool vessels. I was using them as decorations. And I thought, you know, there's always a little bit of that kind of juice left that uh, the technical term is the end drink of the the barrel of the vessel. So to get that last little squeezins out, we we decided just to put our own juice in it and let it go for a year and, and pull it out and see what we got. So we took this rum, as a matter of fact, uh, and stuck it in there for a year and then pulled it out and kind of taste compared it to this guy. And it actually changed a lot. Uh, I wouldn't say like black and white, you know, like, oh my gosh, this is gin, this is whiskey, mm-hmm. that different. But you definitely get some extra minerality from the stone because it's porous on the inside from the actual vessel. And of course, some of that extra uh, rum notes from the rum that was kind of still residual uh, in that uh, cask. So we did that in our, our newest uh, project that we just, I put in uh well, what did I, when did I tell you about that, Jason? Two, three months ago? Yeah. I uh, filled up one of them with whiskey for the first time. So we did two uh, two flagons. Uh, we did a one-year, and we're going to have a two-year. So we'll have, uh, essentially, I should say, three flagons. So we did two one-years, one two-year. And then uh, the fourth flagon is I did a Weller 107 uh, single barrel. So we did a single barrel flagon. Uh, we'll taste that uh, next month and kind of every couple months. We'll just kind of, okay, is it? Yeah, because you can always let it go longer, but you can't ever go backwards in time. And some people think the longer the better, and that's obviously not always the case, especially with you know whiskeys and all that jazz. There's a reason why there's a certain sweet spot of of barrel aging uh, things that uh, all the master distillers talk about. So I you know I listen, uh, but nothing beats just tasting it. So that's what we do. So I, I they sell barrels. They sell small barrels that you could do stuff at home. Um, my my dad uses them to make vinegar. Um, but even even the one that I have, I just use as a decoration. If you did have a small, like um, like two and a half gallon or mm-hmm. something like that, 
what would you maybe recommend for someone to do at home? I mean, they say like put, you know, I, I have one and white I lightning it, in there. It's, it's fun that you ask because I still have no idea. I really wanted to do absinthe. And I, after doing some research, because I thought that'd be really unique mm-hmm. and no one has, when, when you've heard of a barrel aged absinthe, no one's heard of that, but there's a reason why it's, it, <laughs> it it's going to taste terrible. I, okay. there was some guy that did it actually, uh, kind of the same idea that I was going to do it at, uh, just this little, I don't those it's like a quarter it's not even a quarter cast it's like a like the it's, desktop one yeah it's a super super yeah. small one and he did the same thing <clears throat> brand new charred barrel unused did it for six months he's like that was the most expensive experiment that was garbage oh, at the end of the day bummer. uh you know absence very strong but I see a lot of people do cocktails I'm not a fan of that because you know adding water potentially some people do the water in there some people don't do the water in there or sugar syrups the aging them in there I think like doing a really fun blend or lightly aging something just for like a three month or six month, uh, the quote unquote poor man's pappy. I would love to do that a little 12 year, a little one Oh seven in there, like a three month just to rest it, to marry the two together. I think that would be awesome. So I, I guess the final answer is a blend. I think, you know, doing a blend and then having that be like not aging it necessarily, but just kind of m- mellowing it a little bit, marrying the two yeah. or three or four, <coughs> however many liquids you put in there. Uh, I think that'll be the best success. Because there's also this trend. Um, I'm not sure what the term is. Um, I'm trying to think someone. I think Chaz has one. Where it's like you keep a bottle on the counter and you just kind of oh, keep it's an adding infinity, infinity, infinity bottle. Oh yeah. man! So that's a thing right now. So yeah. talk a little bit about that. Oh, infinity bottles. Well, I haven't. I could probably do, and I have so much booze at my house. It's it's terrible. Um, but you essentially just take the couple drops, literally drops, and just pour them in a bottle. So I know some people that will only do whiskey. I know some people, uh, and these are only bartenders. I don't, not when I say people, I mean <laughs> industry bartenders only. <laughs> I've never heard of like, oh yeah, you know, every every time we finish a little bottle of whiskey and when we have a party, we pour it in a, no. It's, it's, oh, there's some guys in the bourbon group. Really? So I'm to talk about That's that. Specifically to whiskey, yeah, the infinity bottles. I mean, you know, like anything, when you read about it or become aware of it, somebody's going to try it out. And so I, it's not necessarily even just the last bottle but i think particularly with whiskey and i'd be curious uh to hear your perception of maybe some other things but with whiskey i think it's exciting or fun for somebody to think like i can be the next master blender even though they get but like in their head right high west built a brand off of blending and all these different things so it's it's like what can i come up with or how can i put these things together and come up with something that's you know also with whiskey too though it's like so much of it is FOMO, fear of missing out, and mm. who can come up with something that's unique enough to make somebody else want what mm-hmm. you have. And there's a couple – I have to find the article. I, I think it was somewhere in San Francisco or somewhere in California, but there was a there was somebody that did like uh, a whiskey blend, and it got – it was super under the radar, and like you had to know the right person to get it, and it was allegedly like the best whiskey that anybody ever tasted. I think that's the, the Weller blend. Mm. That's the same. That's not the, the, same. Pappy, the poor man's Not the poor man's That's pappy, not no. the same. It had a name. It was like um, I'm going to Google it while we're talking. I, I thought th- I, I know you. You're the one. You said I've done that. poor man's pappy myself before, but I, I, it's I not it's, that. It's like uh, it had like a special name. Um, doesn't barrel bourbon make uh, blends as well? They they had an infinity project that happened that had about oh really six or eight different because oh. uh, we tried one of the the numbered barrels with um, Ben Ben yes. Yeah. Yep. And those are pretty readily available now. But there's yeah. also, uh, I think it's called the Infinity Project. And there was um, uh, probably, I bought a bottle in Denver. Um, 
I, I'm not going to recall what was in it. I, I want to say there was bourbon and scotch and, and it was like a bunch of different. It's like a Solera. It's kind of like a, you mm-hmm. know. Well, it's also, yeah, so, I mean, even like the brands, I mean, so, uh, you know, like Jim Beam, they've got bookers and they run out of, everybody's run out of whiskey. Mm-hmm. Smooth Ambler, same thing. Uh, they came out with, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jim Beam came out with a little book, which was, mm. you know, oh, it's uh, the first blend is like a blend of different things, American whiskeys. Uh, none that were good enough to sell on their own, but again, using like Blood the high West other. model, mm-hmm. right? Smooth Ambler, they ran out of old MGP whiskey, so they came out with uh, Old Scout, you know, American whiskey, and their single barrels. They're like blending these things together. Contradiction was a blend. Uh, as like you know, a lot of the brands have ran out of source whiskey, and they've had to resort to essentially creating their own infinity bottles by buying whatever scraps of whiskey they can find and blending them together to try to create. Uh, a sum of the sum that's greater than the, or, you know, the whole that's greater than some of the parts. Um, And so even the big brands are not immune to that because whiskey is just hard to come by now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, whether they're like Weller, they can't even fill the Weller antique, you know, uh, demand and they're pulling barrels to do craft your perfect bourbon, now Weller foolproof and different things. So, you know, they're taking what they have and trying to create, as many limited edition offshoots that they can sell at a premium or taking scraps essentially and trying to figure out how to reconfigure them into something that they can market. Um, well, if you look at a chef, like a chef will do the same thing. Yeah. So, I mean, they're the ones that are taking, you know, the animal carcass and making Nose and stock. It's not and, necessarily yeah, it's a bad like, thing. I yeah. mean, some of those get, uh, well, to your point, like Barrel Bourbon is doing the Infinity Project. I mean, there's a, I guess my point is there's a reason behind that, which is a lot of great whiskey is just running out of. You know, we, uh, we when we do the classes, we often talk about, like, unfortunately, bourbon, unlike cars or tennis shoes, when demand spikes, you can't just add a third line or, you know, have another factory up and running and People create more. Right? Like, you can't just recreate 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old bourbon. These people made the decisions already that long ago of how much supply there would be today. So the supply is constrained and... Obviously, demand is like through the roof and not slowing down anytime soon. So you're seeing, you know, prices increase, age statements decrease, all these things. Producers trying to figure out how to create marketable products out of things that maybe necessarily wouldn't have sold before. But, you know, look at like um, uh, like Bordeaux and I, I the things that kind of happened with that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, that definitely had a huge demand. And now they're speculating on it. and um, Maybe is that kind of where whiskey's going? I don't know if you see any similarities to that. Mm. Oh, man, you know. I don't get super into Bordeaux. I, I can't think, afford it. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Um, when it comes to, like, the whole whiskey market and the future of whiskey and the the current status and kind of the trends that led up to where we are now, um, even three-year-old benchmark eight is allocated. I can't order that. It's and like what's a, allocated just for people that don't uh, know? Allocated is when the MLCC... The state of Michigan. So every state's different for liquor, obviously. Um, Michigan has its own rules, and the rules are that the out of the two distributors, there's only two in all of Michigan, more or less. Uh, yeah, two and a half. Yeah, I think. Well, one of them got pulled, right? <gasps> so, yeah, Did Imperial get pulled. No, the uh, there was four. There was the oh, the Chinese one. The Chinese yeah. one got de- <laughs> shut down. So they're like delisted. You must have said that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was delisted. Um, so anyway, so there's the main distributors, two or three. The technically three. We'll just say mm-hmm. distributors, and uh, they will say, okay, we're getting X amount of cases. Let's just say a hundred bottles of something. Uh, okay, this 
company that owns three liquor stores sells X amount of bottles, let's say a thousand, right? And then you go to a bar and bars don't sell as many bottles. They sell to more people Mm -hmm. because they're selling smaller amounts to the higher quantity. So uh, you can argue that they're reaching more people. But at the end of the day, at the bottom line is kind of what they're looking at uh, the, the companies and liquor stores sell more bottles. So what will happen is the state will portion uh, a certain allocation of that uh, shipment that came into the state to different accounts. So, okay, well, this liquor store sold the most. They're going to get a higher portion of this liquor. They get to buy that. And then, okay, this bar that only sold a couple bottles will only allow to buy one. The, the most what? The, the, so when you say <laughs> well, bottles... That's a, that's a secondary <laughs> issue... Well, Depends all, on all, all just, you said just bottles. sold the most bottles of anything in, in the in the brand Fireball. So, well, so, so well, that's, the other, let's, that's let's, the other dirty. That's the other. Yeah. So let, let's is. talk about this specifically. So let's say Buffalo Trace, right? Buffalo Trace owns a lot of brands. Okay. Say I like want to uh, like Pappy, yeah. like Weller, yeah. uh, like Eagle Rare. We can go on and on. They they own a lot. They're a great whiskey company. Um. So they 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 make but Weller, right? If I didn't sell or whatever my numbers that add up to me buying Buffalo Trace products, that is comparative to how much the liquor store bought of Buffalo Trace products. And as a bar, I'm not buying as many bottles because every time I make a sale, I'm only selling a portion of a bottle. So that doesn't count. They only look at the bottom line, which is the how many bottles I bought. So as a bar, I'm only going to buy so many bottles. As a liquor store, they're going to buy cases because every right time they barrels. make a sale... They're boom. Here's a whole bottle. Boom. Here's a whole bottle. Boom. Here's a whole bottle. The main thing. Uh, the main thing, though, is that even a year ago, two years ago, definitely like three, four years ago, the main thing to think about is that these products weren't allocated in the past. So, you know, Buffalo Trace as a business, every Monday we do inventory. Let's say at Sugar House, we go figure out you know what we sold the week. And we figure out what we need to order, and we say, okay, we need to order Buffalo Trace. We need to order Blands. We need to order any number of products, right? Until the last year, you just make the order and they deliver it because there's enough to go around. And so what's happened in the last year is even for standard products, there isn't enough to go around. That's what's caused the situation, which he's describing is that there's a scarcity problem. And so now it's trying to figure out how to divvy up what's there because there's not enough for everybody. You can't just order as a bar. We can't just order Buffalo Trace or Eagle Rare or Blanton's. We will get them when they come in because, I mean, we do a fair amount of business, but a lot of places can't get them, A, and B, we only get what they give us. We we don't determine anymore. And to his point, like even baseline products like Benchmark or uh, Old Barton or, you know, things that you wouldn't think of, um, there's a scarcity problem and so we can no longer order them. We just are at the mercy of the eight producers to produce some of the distributors to whatever drop they them off. whatever so, they give it to us. So okay, so let me understand this. So you, you guys have an inventory. Yeah, you have you have a base kind of like these are our offerings, right? Yep. You have to make drinks somehow. Um, so you say Buffalo Trace is in one of your drinks. Um, you order Buffalo Trace. It's not for that reason because we can't get it consistently. Well, but but so that's what I'm saying. So if you were to when I, when so at, at at Ackroyd, so I order ground beef, like, and there I, I order ground beef, ground beef gets delivered, right? I order, but do you get like, but do you say like the farm it comes from? What? 
No, but so I was going to use a better example. This would be so we make black pudding or blood sometimes during the holidays. Blood is scarce. Mm-hmm. We'll order the blood. It'll just come back on our invoice. Our shipping invoice is zero. Yep. Are you able to order the Buffalo Trace in the hopes of getting it, or are you just you're not even able to order it? And then no, I mean, it'll, it'll, you can, it'll come, come it back zero. Yeah, it'll come up at zero. Yeah. But okay. We, but we have like our. Our distributor rep or brand rep. There's liquor reps that work in with both distributors that will say, hey, this month we got Buffalo Trace. And so if you want, you can order Buffalo Trace, but it's still, we're at the mercy of whatever they allow us to buy. Yeah, they're they're having a tough time too. This is the baseline kind of anything. I mean, I, but I, Buffalo I, Trace is widely available. Was really widely well, no, no. Yeah, but I mean, was in stores. You can go to a lot of stores. I, I, the number one complaint that I get from customers, and it's very, it's not a lot, but Blanton specifically, it's the delightful bottle. It's round. It's got the fun little horse on it, yeah. and it's a single barrel. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a are fine Blanton single. F- um, Blantons are all single barrel. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so they're actually the one of the ones that when they are coming on the scene, popularizing like this idea of single barrel bourbon because everything is blended uh so to have something that wasn't blended people were like i don't want that that's inconsistent of a product and they're like oh no it's supposed to be that's why we hand write great whatever uh but the point of the of, of the bottle is is you can go to a store and buy it because liquor stores are allocated these products and they don't sell them as often but because they're selling other products from that brand that own blends they get to buy all the blends and put it on their shelf for me i'm only selling so many bottles in a quarter or in a year so they're like okay well then you only get two bottles a quarter three bottles a quarter and then that's that's all i have to work with okay so then so you don't how, put that in a cocktail how, how do you write a menu it's very hard sometimes you say and, you say bourbon. and you know what the crazy thing is joe uh we'll write a menu and we'll talk to the company that owns it and we're like hey we're going to put this on a menu say hendrix orbium for example i mean i know it says limited edition on the bottle but let's pretend it doesn't there's more coming so yeah. well <laughs> also that point right, right you know right? um so a, a bottle uh, of anything a liqueur you know it comes in the state a liquor rep comes around like hey here's a new product you should really you should buy this. You should put it on your menu. We're like, great. We think it tastes great. Uh, we love it. Uh, f- here's a great example. A watershed distillery out of Ohio just came into the bar, and they, we tasted their products, and we're probably going to use one of their products on our menu, the, the chamomile gin. And I, Did you try the apple brandy, though? Really great. Oh a, whole, a whole line. Yeah. So I looked at them straight in the eyes. I'm like, this is going to be on my menu for a whole year. Yeah. <laughs> Am I going to be able to order this for a whole year? And with no bat of the lash, you know, they're like, yes. We will make it for you to buy, and you can have it for yeah. your menu. But that's a that is a very big thing, Joe, with making drinks and kind of hoping we we've done stuff at Sugar House where you know a couple months goes in and it just weirdly um, just became delisted or other bars weren't buying them, and um, you know that that's it. You can't you can't use it anymore. So then you got to reprint your whole menu or find a lateral product or so. So what does a menu? What does the menu at Bad Luck look like then in terms of what's stated on the menu? Oh, we try to we try to keep it as as true as possible. Uh, for our menu, it's thirteen drinks, um, very thematic, of course, with Bad Luck and all of our tarot and, and kind of magics uh, symbolism that we do at the bar. And we thought thirteen would be fun. It's not too many. It's it's enough of variety, and specifically with that, we we always offer anything. You want a gin and tonic? You we have thirty gins, 
expensive gins, uh, very appropriately priced gins, whatever you want. We'll make a nice cocktail with it. But the whole point of our menu is to showcase unique stuff, uh, a little bit different stuff, maybe things that you might not have thought would work together as a pairing, uh, things that us as industry professionals, bartenders might see as a, a food or drink trend. And we're like, we're really into Pisco right now for whatever reason. So that's just a way for us to, it's, it's our creative outlet. Uh, you know, making a whiskey sour is great, but you can only do so much to to that. Uh, with our menu, it's it's our pat, it's our blank canvas that we get to paint whatever we want, and so we'll we'll do our whole menu based on each drink as its own thing. So we'll we'll pick out glassware for that one drink, and that will be the only glassware that we'll pretty much use for that drink for that specific cocktail for our menu. So we do our menu uh, once a year. So every June we'll have a new menu. So we're working on it right now. So the scarcity thing makes it even like you were saying about the the previous watershed mm-hmm. makes it even more difficult because if you're writing a full a menu a full year out, sometimes we've like I said at Sugar House we we've had a menu come out for three months and we've had to reprint because this liquor was unavailable at after three months. To be fair, I mean. The whiskey particularly is going through the, this issue, and some like niche liqueurs, you know. It, I mean, I think even for nut, we've been having a hard time. It's yeah, it's yeah. on and off. Everything. It, wow. The the state of Michigan is so. I love being in Michigan. I'm not talking bad about Michigan. We have uh, out of a lot of other states in in America, we are not the worst. Mm-hmm. We're I would say we're right in the middle. Yeah. We're not the best. We're not the worst. I'm fine within the middle. But to say that we're not the best means we have a lot of dumb laws that I think shouldn't be in place or maybe reworded or changed to actually do what they were thinking and not what it says. I think a lot of the laws are for things that they're thinking and not for what it actually states. And because of what it states, it uh, prohibits us from doing our our craft. I mean, uh, not to get into it, but technically to make bitters, it's 100% illegal. If you go into a bar and you have bitters... To make your own. To make your own. Yeah. And like orange bitters is probably the most popular bitters that I would say any craft cocktail bar makes. It's like kind of their own thing. It's not very hard to make. You can get some, um, uh, um, you can, you know, do your own kind of blends with it. You know, whether it's uh, orange, pe- you know, different types of orange peels, fresh, dried, you know, whatever. Um, it, there's a lot of room for creativity with orange bitters and it's very easy you know alcohol orange peels maybe some bittering agents maybe not it's still going to come out great and orangey that is technically legal can't do it you're modifying alcohol you're repackaging you're right? repackaging yeah. and you're remodifying you're modifying alcohol any infusion illegal technically really absolutely Caked cocktails. it's the craziest yeah. thing in every bar does it every single every craft cocktail bar will have something on draft or they'll have their own bitters or they'll have their own house infusion or whatever uh, and that's technically super illegal. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's so weird. Because uh, that's what we do. That's what I loved about bartending. So that goes back to, if I'm correct, is during Prohibition, they were, you would, whatever bottle you had, mm-hmm, you'd crack mm-hmm. the seal and you'd pour it, mm-hmm. and you knew that was Jack Daniels. Yes. But then a shifty bar owner would go and fill it with something cheap, with water with Kessler or whatever. Vodka, yeah, absolutely. And then put Smooth the cork on. Silk. Yeah. <laughs> and then he'd serve it as Jack Daniels. Yes. So the it's like Yanni was saying, the rules go back to like a good base, but the modern interpretation is kind of screwing up creativity. Yeah, absolutely. And you can you can do that. I, I'm not going to name names. I worked when I was mm, 
19, so I shouldn't have been bartending technically. I mean, you can technically bartend in Michigan at 18, but you can't actually. But you were in Ontario. Sure, whatever. <laughs> so I was at this uh, rock venue, uh, and uh, the owner did that on the DL. Like, we didn't know, but like, we came in early and we're like, what are you doing? And he had a funnel on some of the fifths in the wells, and we're like, that's not the vodka in the well. <laughs> so now, because I know I would combine bottles, but it'd be the same bottle, right? And even that's that's totally legal, yeah. but that's not what that's not what they're doing, yeah. unfortunately. That actually, so that actually speaks to, and we haven't really kind of dug into that. We've been talking about spirits a lot, but that actually speaks to your background in the mm-hmm. bar industry and sort of how you came. Like maybe we should talk about how you came to even be at Bad Luck and Sugar House and what happened before that, because. To me, that was always fascinating. Somebody that's worked with you, um, maybe people don't know, but I mean, you were what employee? One of the early earliest employees at the Sugar House, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Yes, sir. And you can maybe speak to your experience before that that even led to that happening. Oh yeah, I th- as the Sugar House, I Detroit's think you original know, if you're going to do something, go all the way. Uh, in in bartending and music and whatever you're doing, there's lots of different styles, and you'd be pigeonholing yourself if you didn't at least try or you know, expose yourself to all these different genres or styles. So when I, uh, I've always been into music, playing guitar. I did uh, rock bands and a little touring for a while when I was younger, between 15 and and 21, and kind of 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. I dabbled in bartending because it was technically illegal for someone to hire me. But people would be like, oh, you want to work as an assistant for the night? We'll give you some cash under the table. Great, whatever. Love it. Sounds sounds great. I get to party and I get to play bartender, but I, there's no responsibility. Sounds like a lot of fun. So I got to do that a lot of a lot of weird places, you know, rock venues. Um, uh, oh man, there was like a there was a, a hall and they did like burlesque shows like once a month. Uh, I did sports bartending where it's just people on lunch watching sports or whatever. Same thing with business bartending, high volume bartending. Club bartending, private bartending, literally every every kind. Uh, when I turned 21, uh, I knew that this is something that I could potentially make money on. Uh, playing rock and roll really doesn't pay the bills. You get a lot of uh, amenities, uh, but you do not get that cash at the end of the day. So I'm like, you know, let's let's take a break, uh, and uh, I can always continue to play guitar. Let's try to do something else. So I. Uh, became the uh, I, I started bartending at literally the day I turned 21 at this place called RJ's. Uh, it's demolished now. Uh, it's this was 10 years ago. Uh, it was exactly 10 years ago. Um, 31, uh, and so I was 21. So 10 years ago, I started uh, bartending at RJ's. It was a reopened Applebee's or a Chili's, one of the two. It was essentially one of those. It shut down for like five years, boarded up. This local guy came in and bought it unboarded it repainted it and that was it called it a wow. day i swear there was still some of the liquor was still in there from when it was closed <laughs> down like there's like weird half bottles of like who knows what and uh, i bartended there and i i know i learned real fast my father was a a chef uh for many years back in the day and you know he kind of taught me to always try things whether i wanted to or not when i was growing up i was kind of forced but then when i grew up it was enjoyable to always be trying a variety of things and Again, just going back to saying, if you're going to do something, go all the way with it. And I, I started uh, to see things in a different light. You know, first you, you, you get hired and you learn every dumb shot that possibly you can, every Long Island variation. And then once you get past those kind of like silly gimmicky things, then you either 
stay there forever or you can elevate yourself and uh bartending is very competitive and regardless of your persona and your kind of character that you put out there as kind of what you're doing uh knowledge goes a really long way and uh i just started reading books my dad bought me uh uh, uh, two books he bought me a a terrible coffee table book that had a lot of pictures in it that was a lot of fun from like the 90s which i still have which is great and uh he bought me the oldest bartending book uh which was the uh 1888 uh reprint of the 1862 jerry thomas bartender's manual which is essentially the first published kind of works of a bartender that had cocktails, drinks, and liqueurs and recipes to make the the drinks in there as well. And because and it's crazy f- measurements, like a wine the, glass. All, all, yeah. The ingredients, the the verbiage is terrible. That's why he bought me both books. He's like, this is what this is the dawn of bartending <laughs> and this is kind of what it evolved to. So it was really Certainly wild. you can make your way somewhere. Somewhere, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I, I worked there for 10 months and I knew that that wasn't the place for me to elevate my game. Um, you can only do so much in the, in the environment that you're in. So long story short, I, I went to Birmingham because I felt like that was a little bit more high class than being off of Northwestern Highway, uh, which is where RJ's was. And I uh, went to downtown Birmingham, uh, walked into this place that was under construction uh, called Lux, uh, right on North Old Woodward. Uh, and they hired me. I don't know. They thought that a 22-year-old kid could do it and I, I i did my best uh i did my absolute best i i bartended as best i could i might not have been the best bar manager which was kind of my technical title um uh, but i absolutely bartended my heart out and uh people left happy and people loved what we were doing there and uh from just being super positive and uh i guess generating a little popularity through just doing what I thought was the right thing to do. Fresh lemon juice, fresh lime juice. I made my own simple syrup. Uh, we had egg white sour cocktails. Uh, that was kind of unheard of, uh, especially in Birmingham and all these other bartenders and industry uh, restaurant owners were talking about me in the sense of like, who's this kid coming on the scene, you know, and I, this is, I dress just like this. And that was kind of unheard of. Everyone always wore black t-shirts in Birmingham when you worked. And I came and to what work are you wearing right now? a tie, a black vest and a black shirt. I mean, I don't think this is very fancy. I'm wearing jeans and Doc Martin boots that are untied, but you know, it's, you got to have a little bit of put togetherness uh, to convey to your, whoever's in front of you that you know what you're doing, or at least you're going to do it in a clean manner, whether it's going to be good or bad, it, they're going to, enjoy getting whatever you're going to get from me. Uh, So uh, I got hired at Townhouse, uh, which was way more Birmingham. Townhouse in Birmingham. And uh, we opened uh, in the winter. Uh, And if you don't know or haven't been there, it's a fine spot. They they have a really excellent, I think it's like a $20 hamburger or something like that. Really fancy hamburger. You should definitely get that if you go. Um, But they're very, very small. I'm going to tell you right now, they're super small. I think like the inside capacity is... Oh boy, bad luck might be even bigger, which is wild to say, but they're like 30, 25 capacity Weird. In, indoor. Yeah. And then they have a 150, 200 seat patio. <laughs> and the bar was designed for the 30 people. It was not designed for the plus 150 uh, people. Yeah. Cause it's half the size of this. Cause room. why would it be? Right. Well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh Jerry bless his soul I worked there and then the summer came and I worked through that one year and I just I just wasn't wasn't for me. It was a lot of work. Uh, well, because on top of that, the kitchen's in oh another boy. building. Yeah, I mean, and I, can, storage I don't want to keep building. going on and on, but yeah, it was. <laughs> it's just the design, uh, Jeremy. I love you, but uh, 
do took some, advantage of a good spot. Do some remodeling. Yeah. <laughs> do some construction if you can. He can't though. I mean, for, he's working with what he got and what he has. And for what he worked, what he did with the space uh, was incredible to create something which is still, when I go in there every once in a while, seems impossible to have a restaurant and a bar and a patio that's operational, still running, and they're still running great to my knowledge, yep. and they opened up a second location downtown. Obviously, they're doing, they're doing something right. Um, so that was great. And then uh, doing from there, I was kind of unhappy working there for a year, and long story short, uh, I, I heard about this guy, uh, and it was really funny because I specifically went into Cork, uh, I don't know if you guys remember that. It was like a Pleasant Ridge around uh, Woodward there. Still there. It's still there. Yeah. 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 Still there. Yeah. Uh, when they first opened, they had a bar beverage guy, and I was thinking about working there, and I was talking to the bartender, and uh, he's like, oh, there's this guy in Detroit. His name's Dave, and he's going to open this bar, and they only have 100 drinks, and if you want something that isn't on that list, you can't have it. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what it was, and I remember like, that is the dumbest thing. <laughs> that is the stupidest us a day who's gonna so who this has, is seven eight years ago right who, yeah it's eight years ago yeah. i'm like who has the balls to open up a bar downtown craft cocktails and you can't get what you want that's 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 insane and uh that kind of stuck in my mind like well maybe there's something to this you know maybe there's uh maybe he does know what he's got going on and you know maybe he's so confident with what he has that screw screw everyone else uh you know if you don't like it you can go to any other bar you know, why, why do we have to do what everyone else is doing? And I really love that kind of rock and roll rebellion attitude. So, uh, the story goes, I, I walked into the Oakland, uh, the first week there, they're open with my, uh, my really good friend, Matt Carter. Two of us walked in there. Uh, I see, uh, Dave K sitting at the bar and I only knew him from just weirdly, I wouldn't say st- stalking him on Facebook. I added him on Facebook and I'm like, Oh, Hey, you're a bartender guys. Like, yep. And that was it. That was our first ever communication was, okay, cool, cool kid. I'm like, all right, you're a guy. That's fine. And uh, walked in like, oh, hey. So we Matt and I ordered cocktails, uh, just one round. And the only reason we were at the Oakland is because it was the new cocktail bar. And we're like, maybe we can work here. You know, this could be a cool spot in Ferndale. And I don't know. The vibe wasn't there. Uh, it just We weren't. I didn't feel it like that magical connection. I was making money working in Birmingham was great. And I would only leave that to uh, invest myself in something that seemed, mm-hmm. seemed like a little hefty, a little bit more weight. So, you know, we had our cocktail. I'm like, this is great. We'll come back and have cocktails. But I, I couldn't see myself working at, at, at the Oakland and, and Dave happened to be sitting at the bar. It was afternoon. Like they just opened. No one was there. And on the way out, I'm like, Hey, you're that guy. He's like, Yep. I'm that guy opening the bar downtown. I'm like, oh, if you ever need help, he's like, sure, come in. We open next week. And I said, okay. So Matt, long story short, Matt and I go, uh, this is actually a really long story. Uh, uh, Matt and I go to Sugar House and uh, we sit, I remember the exact spot and we had uh, two old fashions that uh, Chuck Galash made uh, for us that were great. And just being at Sugar House that first week that they're open, that kind of whole vibe and being downtown and it's you can find it, but it's if you're not looking for it, you don't know it's there kind of thing. We didn't have a sign initially. We just had the window cling, uh, the window painted sign, and we didn't have our hanging fancy wood sign. So it was like a little bit hidden, but it wasn't. It had cool uh, taxidermy, and I don't know. It just it just spoke to me. I'm like, this is a really this is a really cool place, and 
to have a, a, a cocktail menu that an owner was doing that uh, I, th- I felt was uh, – I think that was me. Is that know, me? I'm sorry. Okay. Um, so uh, to have an owner that was really investing with his staff – just really spoke to me. I'm like, wow, every every bar owner I went to, it's just like, here's the owner, they show up, they fucking leave, whatever. They don't care. They're not they might be doing things. I don't know what they're doing, whatever. And then here's Dave, dressed, bartending, ready to go. He's doing the thing. And I, I really, I really admired that. And I'm like, this is there's something, there's something here. So I just said, Hey, you know, do you are you looking for help? And he's like, sure. So I just showed up the next week and haven't I didn't leave for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> so so now we fast forward and we get to bad luck. And I think that attitude of uh, come in and sit down, have a drink, or you can go somewhere else. Like if you you know, but you guys, there, there's this also this tendency since Sugar House opened, it's more hospitable, right? So thank you. Su- like Sugar House is more hospitable, and, and bad luck is very hospitable. So there is this tendency that you can order off the menu. Absolutely, we we don't. Pretentiousness is something that I don't ever want people to speak in our in the same sentences as bad luck. Well, and it was engineered. So from what I get when I talk to Sandy and Dave when they first opened these spaces, is they were trying to get people to rethink kind of club and like nineties cocktails. Absolutely, so. absolutely, hundred percent. And yeah. and that was it was a different time then. That's you know, a, you know that may be from we, the owner's perspective. Yeah. I I wonder because I think about like uh, and reading about some of the bars in New York, but. I feel like some of the bartenders and the owners may have just been too far ahead of the consumer base. Mm-hmm. You know, like, look, these people were, uh, you know, reading, diving into history, mm-hmm. diving into spirits. Yeah, I know my first experience with Sugar House was a good one. I went on a date, but I was open to it. But Whereas yeah, yours whenever, wasn't right. Well, you have to tell no, somebody no. Yeah, yeah because <laughs> you're there. How do you tell somebody? How do you tell somebody no gracefully? Right. If the idea is like it's hard, and that's part of the uh, you know it's a it's a prohibition speakeasy that's supposed to soften the blow. There's a reason why we're telling you no, but you're still telling somebody no, right? And not everybody is necessarily like Receptive. trained or skilled. Yeah. well from the yeah. service perspective mm. not necessarily trained the or, way to read you know, the situation yeah, to, to say that right and so at the time like now we're in a situation where we almost take for granted how educated the consumers are or what the expectation that was a struggle is. there was, right but at the time teach. yeah like there is that element of like yeah like here's a bunch of knowledge and how do you communicate that in the right way and i feel like it's a both like from my perspective at least from what i've seen you know, consumers have become more educated, which is great. But also, you know, there's been such an emphasis on the service side of it mm-hmm. because of that. Like, how can we close that gap from both sides? And um, it's been a great thing. I think the Internet is something that is available even more now and everyone has it. And to be able to kind of do almost anything, not saying you're going to do it great. I've done a lot of tutorials on, on YouTube and found that that I should have hired someone. But... Some of the times, oh man, I, that, that's I can't believe it was that easy, and I would have hired someone to you know fix the the plumbing under my sink, but I watched a video and spent a little bit longer and right. did it for free. That's awesome. Same thing with food and beverage. Uh, you can go online, and there is way too many uh, Instagrams and YouTubes for how to make cocktails and how to make unique drinks and how to make really fancy ones, and you could spend three hours to make this one round of the fanciest drinks for your friends. 
So to go out in public, I need to make sure that we're providing more than just the product that you think you can make at home. I mean, whether well, or not... Yeah, there's so much more service than just that. Yeah. Because I feel like, yeah, you can make that fancy drink that cocktail chemistry made. Mm-hmm. But then, okay, you've just bought six bottles that maybe you're never going to touch again. <laughs> does, does, yes, you just yes. spent 30 minutes making a drink for your friends while they're sitting in the other room talking without you. <laughs> mm-hmm. There is something to be said about a bar... That is not, you know, you kind of doing it yourself. And I'm a huge advocate for home bartending, but like some of those drinks are better left to the professionals. So, love to make them for you. Off my Apple box. (laughs) (laughs) So, one of the things when, when, uh, Bad luck opened, and the the kind of publicity I got originally was for the, the cost. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, how do you, how, how do people kind of navigate that? Is is that a complaint, or is, do people do you find that people just don't are taken care of so well that it doesn't even become an issue? But it's still a thing, though. You guys Absolutely. are still one of the higher price. Always, right? when yeah. people walk in, it's it's totally different. I couldn't find your bar. What do you mean you don't have a sign? I can't believe you're this small. I can't believe I waited. The list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. But our the reason we're I believe that we're successful. And then we're going to continue to be is that our staff, and I'm very thankful every day that we have such a great staff, uh, that really take that message to heart that people are in there. They're in there. They're giving you an opportunity. Knock it out of the park, mm-hmm. you know, with just, just the level of just personality of just being nice, just have manners, uh, say, say all that kind of jazz when, uh, you know, people come in. Oh, thank you for coming in. That, that's something that is so minor, but is still missed. In a lot of places, even really high-end places, just that level of politeness. So just to take that even further, when we offer anything to our guests, if you want to spend $1,000 on a cocktail, we'll make it for you. If you want to spend $13 on a classic whiskey sour, we'll absolutely make that for you. We just want to take care of people that are in the bar. We know that there's not as many seats. So when you come in, we're going to take care of you. If you're fortunate enough to find us and get that seat, uh, we're going to absolutely uh, knock out of the park with uh, how well you're taken care of. Okay. So then how can people find Bad Luck Bar both online and physically? Yes. Well, <laughs> bad, the first time we've asked that. <laughs> badluckbar.com. Okay. Uh, everything is on there. Uh, we have a one of the most beautiful Instagrams out of all the cocktail bars in Michigan, in my opinion. Thanks, uh, Jason. Jason. Yes, I didn't want to. Thanks. Jason doesn't. Oh, was it a secret? Phenomenal, sometimes sometimes less is more. Uh, I, I just, I love the look of that and, and, and our Instagram is really organized and I'm, I'm very OCD. So it, it works. Thank you, Jason, yeah. by the way. Uh, so Instagram, so badluckbar.com. And then, of course, physically finding us. I would always recommend calling, uh, if it's a Friday or Saturday, uh, which our number is available everywhere. There's only one phone number. Uh, we open at five o'clock. We're closed on Sundays. Uh, we're located in Capitol Park between uh, Griswold and Woodward, between State Street and Grand River. Uh, Long Don't search. give up. No, we are. <laughs> uh, doors, yeah. We're directly behind. Uh, we're in the alley behind the Nike store, or we on the other side. We're in the alley behind Desert Oasis Coffee Shop, Detroit Bikes. So if you're at the bike store, we're in the alley behind that. If you're at Under Armour, we're in the alley behind that. All right, Yanni, thanks for being with us. Thank you. you. Such a pleasure. Uh, One more time, thank you to Axel Brewing uh, for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget about the secret meeting release party on April 13th at 4 p.m. Until next time, dine well, friends.